Welcome to another episode of Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you the coolest string players on earth. This is going to be a very different episode. In the past, we've mostly chatted with artists about their art. We'll share a bunch of their music and then talk about their lives and their processes. Our guest today, Rudolf Hocken, is an artist. You're listening to his Viper Concerto right now. But the conversation did not go the way I expected it to. But that's cool. It was fascinating for me at the time. It was really fun to listen again during editing. And I decided to just allow you guys to listen in with no edits. I expected to chat with him some about his day job and then get into his music. But he's so passionate about his day job, what he's doing at the University of Illinois, we just chatted about that for about 90 minutes. I was riveted, and I think you will be too. It's really long, so I'll get right into the interview. But one thing before we start. Our sponsor for this episode is Electric Violin Shop. Please visit their website at electricviolinshop.com for all your instrument and gear needs. All right, let's get on with Rudolf Hocken, rock star violinist. Hawken, and he is a professor at the University of Illinois. Yeah, at Urbana-Champaign. Yeah, and so we're, we're fellow Big Ten people. I'm a, yeah. I'm a Spartan, he's a... we're But we're not in Big Ten country. We're out here in Albuquerque, New Mexico mm-hmm. for the ASTA convention, the American String Teachers Association. Yeah. And uh, one of the exciting things, one of the reasons I wanted you guys to hear from, from Rudolph is that he has started a new program at the University of Illinois. So, yeah, tell us tell us what you're doing, man. All right. Well, we've started the, a bachelor's in electric strings at the University of Illinois. And um, when I uh, looked, you know, I got it all going with the administration. And when I looked up, uh, I wanted to see who my competitors were, and I couldn't locate any. And then uh, a few weeks later, I got a call from Mark Wood saying, do you realize you're the... You have the only bachelor's in electric strings anywhere, uh, which was actually pretty surprising. There are a lot of, you know, bachelor's degrees in, uh, you know, jazz violin or alternative styles or uh, you know, country fiddling and so forth. But what I think is different about this is that, um, you know, when you when you have a program in a school of music, it's interesting. It's in some cases. It's categorized by the instrument, like mm-hmm. the bachelor's in violin, viola, cello, piano, saxophone, and in other cases, it's categorized by the style of music. Mm-hmm. So we have the you know, divisions within the school of music. Now, so we have a string division, brass division, and then the jazz division, which I find really uh, interesting yeah. because all of them are by instrument, except jazz. Then suddenly suddenly it's by genre, right? right. And so uh, that points to what we were just hearing in uh, Martha's uh, panel there, that basically in a university or conservatory, all music is, uh, you know, Western classical music, unless otherwise noted, right? right? It's the default. Yeah, it's the default. And um, that... That also 
leads to people saying, well, okay, what kind of music do you play on the electric instrument, right? And for me, what I, in, in my own universe, the electric, electric violin actually, or electric viola or, or cello, isn't actually any more a jazz or hip-hop or rock instrument than it is a classical instrument. The way I the way I see it, you know, have I mean, having grown up, uh, you know, in a classic, you know, classical uh, European uh, training environment, the way I see it is that the string instruments have finally caught up with keyboard instruments. So, we, so string instruments have finally reached the level that keyboard instruments had in the Baroque, because they had. What they did in the, in the Baroque era with keyboards, it was very interesting, is they had a keyboard instrument for every size room. So if you were in a really small room, you had a clavichord or a virginal or, you know, all those little instruments. Then if you were in a moderately big room, you're playing for the prince and you claps twice, and, you know, whatever, right. you had a harpsichord. And then if you were in a cathedral, you had the pipe organ. And so with... I mean, obviously those those instruments, you know, you you do have to adjust quite a bit from a clavichord to a harpsichord to a um, to a, a pipe organ, um, but essentially with the same general playing technique and the same layout, you could just have, you know, you could play anywhere, and it would be one hundred percent appropriate for the size room, and. They began doing that with, for example, with the lute. You know, they have a lute, which is very, very quiet, obviously. Then they have the theorbo, which is a, you know, a, a gigantic lute, right, for bigger halls. But there's just a limit to what you can do with a string instrument. And with wind instruments, you know, they had, you know, recorders or similar instruments to recorders all the way to... to uh, you know, sort of predecessors of a modern trumpet, mm-hmm. um, right? So they had, there was always this effort to make instruments appropriate for the size room. Now, to me, that's one thing that's been lost today because, you know, you go to a little tiny practice room somewhere, you have a grand piano in this practice room, yeah. it just absolutely blasts your ears <laughs> out. And then on the other hand, you go to a concert, in a concert hall seating, almost 3,000 people, and someone's on stage playing a lute. And it's like, well, that's not... That's, you know, it's no matter how precisely and perfectly you're playing that lute, it's not authentic. That's not how it was. It wasn't intended for this huge hall, right? It doesn't sound that way. It's, it's supposed to be in a small room. And so now, the way I see an electric instrument is simply the string equivalent of a pipe organ. And, uh, you know, of course, in the Romantic era, then they, uh, classical and Romantic eras, they developed grand pianos, which are good for, you know, halls bigger than what a harpsichord would fill and not quite where the pipe organ is. You know, they, they filled that out. But with strings, up until now, it's always been necessary, you know, to in the symphony orchestra to have you know, 12 or 14 people playing the identical lines, right? In or, and that's no longer necessary. So my, in my own mental universe, the way a Baroque composer would have seen the electric violin is not any different from the organ. 
they would have said, well, great. You, you've done that. I mean, first their jaws would drop all the electricity, sure. yeah. the technology. But I, you know, I would say that playing, you know, Bach sonatas and partitas on an electric instrument is roughly equivalent to taking, you know, the, the you know, French suites and English suites for keyboard and playing them on a pipe organ. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm in those huge cathedral plays. And, you know, if you're, a, if you play in a, you know, if you play in a football stadium, you, of course, you'd use an electric instrument. In fact, you know, I do a lot of this thinking, well, what would these composers say if they came back? But what would Corelli say if he came back, came back now? And I think a lot of them would be astonished that we're not all playing electric instruments. Mm. They would just like, well, so... Like, you know, they, they would... I mean, I think they would just... They would be sort of speechless about it. And in fact, you know, a big debate I have too is just this, this principle that, you know, symphony orchestra by necessity has you know, and huge section, string sections, everybody playing the same part, just so they can be heard. Right. And, you know, uh, you don't have 12 oboes playing the same right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. And my thought, too, it's, if I think of someone like Mahler, who knows? I mean, this is you know, going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, but I imagine maybe he would have said, well, well, let's just have one first violin, one second violin, one viola. Just one crank him up. Yeah, yeah, crank him up, put a delay on it, work on it so it doesn't sound mechanical. And I, you know, it's all pure conjecture, but it's finally the technology that you need. So string instruments, just volume-wise, purely volume-wise, can compete with, right. with other instruments. And then... There's also there a whole there's a whole slew of um, traditions that have developed in in you know what we sort of quote classical music and romantic music related to the fact that individual instruments are so quiet and um, one one of them is just simply if you write a concerto you have to orchestrate so that soloist doesn't get drowned out, right? Sure. And so you see, especially, I mean, I'm a viola professor, and you see this uh, all the time. You see, like, Hindemith uh, scored, you know, for the Schwanendria, uh, the, the sort of big viola concerto. The uh, orchestra has no violins and no violas. Yeah, and so, you know, just so the soloist can be heard. And even, let's say, Sibelius Violin Concerto, the orchestra is massively loud until the violinist comes in and it's super, super quiet. And it's, I love that concerto, but it is, it's slightly odd sounding. It's like, wow, that's really a huge drop in volume. And, then, and none of that is necessary if you play with electric instruments. Right? That's true. And the, you can orchestra. And so I... I've written concertos, you know, uh, for with yeah, so electric solo instrument, and it's just incredibly refreshing to be able to just just orchestrate. I've, I've right. played, you know, with an orchestra of eight, you know, I don't know how many, um, it was like 
150 members you know some youth orchestra with a whole band and multiple trumpets and it was like okay, okay everybody just play don't and, play as loud as you want I can yeah, get louder than you yeah and that and so just I, I think for me what I want to distinguish here is is or the the sort of point I want to make is that it's not necessarily a matter of playing other styles than classical it's a matter of simply playing a different instrument and just that alone, just 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 the volume, even if you don't use even if you don't use any kind of pedals or any kind of effects, you know, people think, well, just playing loud or what's you know a big deal? That 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 is a big deal. It's a it's an enormous it would have an enormous impact on every performance. Um, well, and what I tell people too is that the electric violin can not only obviously get much much louder mm. than an acoustic violin; it can also get much much quieter yes. than an acoustic violin. So, if you're practicing, that's yeah. great. But you know, occasionally you're going to end up in a coffee shop or something where it's it's you and an acoustic guitar or whatever, and and maybe you know we heard it yesterday. I was in I was in a class that Julie Lyon Lieberman yeah. was teaching, and there was a, a girl playing violin and her sister playing cello. And there was a place where the cello needed to take the lead and the violin needed to play accompaniment. Well, violin is louder than a cello. And so this violinist had to lay so far back so that the cellist could be heard that it affected what she could or could not do on her instrument. So if she'd had an electric, just rock your heel back on the violin pedal. You can continue to play with whatever technique you want to. You can get the timbre or you can do the chopping or whatever you want to do. But you can actually get quieter yeah. than an acoustic can. And then two minutes later, you can... I mean, so you have so many more options dynamically, yeah. right? Yeah, and that in that sense, the electric violin is actually sort of the equivalent uh, of the clavichord as well as the pipe organ, right? right? I've got, I've got I the mean, best of all worlds, right? Yeah, I mean, of course, the pipe organ, I suppose... Yeah, you can play that very, very quietly sure. as well. You turn that so, fan down. Yeah, yeah I mean... It's you know pipe organs to me are are amazing instruments, and then you know there's there's a lot of you know when I think of sort of the pushback we get, it's like well an electric violin doesn't sound like the acoustic, and it's like well a pipe organ doesn't sound like a harpsichord. Sure. I mean, and a harpsichord doesn't sound like a clavichord, and none of them sound like a piano. But that's precisely what's so cool about it, right? That's the fact that they have such a similar Playing, I mean, you know, the adjustment we have to make from an acoustic and from a Baroque violin to a Romantic violin to an electric is much smaller than a keyboardist has to make from a clavichord to a harpsichord to, to a pipe yeah, or fair enough. grand piano. I mean, they, that's much, you know, much more of an adjustment. So, to me, that the fact that you can get so many different tone, you know, so many different playing styles. And uh, you know, so many different sounds out of um, yeah, out of basically the same technique uh, to me is actually wonderful. Right? Yeah, and That's it's okay. it's yeah. astounding to me that that nobody else has has done that. Is is said? Well, let's just have a degree in this thing. Yeah, and I think well, I mean, there are a lot of um, you know, there are a lot of problems you have to overcome. Uh, sort of administratively. Yeah, you know better than anyone. Yeah, I mean, 
in order to do it, and this is this is one thing where, uh, you know, people from the outside or some students say, well, why don't they just start this program and there's snobs and on and on. But one thing that you have to remember is when you when you're hired at a university, just you're hired as a professor of viola or violin, right? Your job is to recruit students for the orchestra. You're, and then you have the uh, National Association of Schools of Music, NASM, come through and they evaluate what you're doing. And that still is very much based on European classical music and more recently also on jazz. But then try, if you try to do anything outside of that, and it's not necessarily even electric instruments. Let's say you want to teach viola da spalla, you know, the sort of Sure. Uh, chest, uh, chest cello, or whatever you would call it. Um, you know, well, what instrument is that? Is that a viola? Is that a cello? Is that this? You can't. Right? Or even the instrument Yo-Yo Ma plays is this um, alto violin. So it's called an alto violin. It's played like a cello and tuned like a viola. So, okay. Right? Yeah. Like, built by Carlene Hutchins. And so he recorded Bartok viola concerto on it. And to me, that's an amazing instruments entirely classical right but even that you can't push something like that through because who's going to teach it is that the purview of the cellist of the you know or the violist or the, and and will anybody get hired by an orchestra playing this instrument because it sounds like a viola but is played like a cello but is called an alto violin and this is we can't just have chaos like you know this, yeah. this kind of thing happens so it becomes very difficult so the way i you know i i got together with you know very friendly administrative people who understand a lot of things i don't understand they you know then they say well this can't be a bachelor of music this has to be a bachelor of arts and then they say oh well then or a bachelor of musical arts and you know they have all these, all these okay fine we'll call it whatever right yeah. and is it a concentration or is it an option or is it this or the you know just you know whatever you whatever you want it to be so what i of course the other concern i have as anybody teaching anything in college, is how are students going to make a living sure. of it? And so uh, we have a very good music technology program. And we also, uh, by lucky chance, we have uh, one of the best engineering schools mm -hmm. in Indeed. the world, basically. And in addition to that, we have a very uh, progressive and very well-known new music program. Like John Cage got his master's at our school, and uh, Harry Parch built his you know, experimental those huge bells and all these things there. So uh, all of those things combined make for an environment where students can very readily learn. For example, just electroacoustic playing, which is kind of my that's become my obsession right now. And I mean, I've played a lot of electroacoustic music. Um, just in what they call the modern classical style, avant-garde, so, you know, and, you know, really wild sort of backing tracks, you know, they don't have a, a steady beat, right, and you play with them, and it's awfully difficult to stay, you know, and when I played at some of these uh, conventions, like the 
uh, Society for Electroacoustic Music in the United States, a Seamus. Oh, wow. Uh, pronounce it in Irish. Whatever. That's funny. Which is really cute. But, you know, you go there and um, every year things get better and better. The technology improves. And for me, you know, on one hand, I do a lot of composing and I have every bit of sympathy for composers wanting to write whatever they want and get whatever they want out of it. On the other hand, I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for performers who just want to, just what should I play? When should I play? Right. You know, and then also for people who've built musical instruments and don't want you, you know, hitting your bow on the back of them. You know, sure. there, there are a lot of factors there, and all of these deserve respect. And so with these electric instruments, one thing is, you know, everything is much easier to play. I mean, this is, especially with the Viper that you just, you know, you just attach and it sits there. Um, <coughs> and the ability to add more and more strings, uh, that makes everything much easier. But also, um, you know, these audio interfaces and software, everything has become very affordable. So I simply have a click track going through little, you know, earbuds. Sure. Which, you know, 20 years ago, would have, you know, wouldn't have been that readily available um, or, or that easily programmable you know, on a, with, a, with a MacBook and all that. But it just makes everything incredibly easier. Right. Because you can hear things that the audience can't hear. Yeah. Yeah, you can, and you just, you simply, you know, you, you, assign, you know, there's a little bit of sort of internal architecture in the, you know, in whatever, like I use Pro Tools, and other people use Ableton, or they use, you know, sure. whatever, and it's a little different in every digital audio workstation, but you can just go online and figure it out, and, all right, I want this to only go through my ears, and I want that to go through the speakers, and then the cool thing is, your click track can be anything you want. Right. So it can say, top of page three, or you know, whatever. Yeah, I play in the worship world a lot, and, and we use a lot of backing tracks in, yeah. in worship music, and, and it's, it's in your ears. Sometimes you hear, first, mm -hmm. two, three, four, and then yeah, you're in the verse. That's and you right. Go, hey, you know, the first time I heard it, I was like, who, who on earth is talking to me? No. But it, it makes perfect sense yes. to make sure everybody can be on the same page when you don't have a conductor, right? Because in yeah. an orchestra, you've got a conductor, and he can look at everybody and be like, ready, right. ready, ready? Exactly. So in, in the classical world, they're completely used to people having cues yeah. or having sheet music in front of them, right? So I guess it's it's a completely historically legit thing. Yeah, and I I mean, the the thing, the advantage to it, too, to composers in any absolutely any style is that they can write anything they want right. and especially things like polyrhythms mm. where you know you'd have i mean there were i remember when i was growing up i actually grew up in the town i live at i was born and raised in urbana illinois and there was that is so unusual yeah. in 2019 right yeah and then there was a guy um a, he was a composition professor his name was paul zahn and he could conduct perfectly in you know five eight in one hand and a seven sixteenth with the other Oof. it was like un absolutely unbelievable i remember he was standing up there i was playing some new music ensemble and i thought okay that this has got to be fake 
But I looked at one hand, looked at the other, like, yeah, he's actually... Oh, my goodness. Like, so, you know, but that kind of thing is, you know, when you have click tracks like that, that are absolutely inaudible to the audience, right. you can write music of any complexity you want. And I actually do think a lot of music is simpler than the composer wanted it because just at the some, musicians couldn't execute. Yeah, because yeah. at some point, look, how is this going to work? And one of the one of the big primary examples to me is in operas, where often you have in Italian operas some you know some moments where people say, oh, that's so trite here, cha 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 cha, and then the singer comes right. in, but. There was no other way to do it. Yeah, if the singer yeah. doesn't have perfect pitch, how are they going to yeah. know how what pitch? How are they going to pick should? that note out yeah. of thin air? Yeah. And now, you know, with these, you know, you it, could feed it to them in their ears. That's right. And then that would change. That could make the entire that that would eliminate all the little oom cha cha. It occurred to me too that, that not only can the performer hear things that the audience can't, yeah. you could actually do the opposite of that too. And for some really complex polyrhythmic things, if I've got one person in, in seven eight and another person in three four, and those two things are so hard to hear and play yeah. at the same time, I could actually say, you know what, the guy who's playing three four, he doesn't need to hear that seven eight stuff. You're right. He's going to hear the click in three four. He's not going to hear the other player because I didn't put that other yeah. player in his ears. He can just play in three four. The seven eight guy can play in seven eight, yeah, and exactly. then the audience hears the blend Both. of the two. But the musicians don't have to feel like, oh my god, I can't. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what I'm listening to. Yeah, that's so, exactly. So you could actually execute things that that like regular musicians just couldn't execute. Yeah, and that even even music that's not massively complicated, like Led Zeppelin has. It's like um, I remember when I was a teenager listening to Black Dog and just feel like yeah. The, it's it's like you know it's, it's I don't know if you do call it like a phase shift or something like yeah. but it just like wait how do those two fit together you know it's this right. mathematical thing like you know the 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 tune and the the drum get, kind of get off of each other and then they join yeah, up again around, yeah. and you know that <laughs> kind of thing um, is actually very tough to play right from the start but um, yeah so you. So I think for me the big the big thing I want to emphasize is that it's just it's an instrument like any other instrument and can play any style and it's and it can really it can improve every style just you know and, and not just not just that you play music as it exists but louder you can actually you could go back and reorchestrate a lot of these concertos Agreed. The way the the composer and see this is where things get presumptuous on my part, where I just simply imagine I, I just you know I read all the things the composer has you know written and in prose and everything study and I think what would that composer how how would that composer have changed the music if the electric instrument had existed? Sure. And Mahler did that with Mozart symphony. Which I, you know, people now they say, oh, that's so, so terrible. But what he said was, well, how would Mozart have orchestrated this if he had had a hall as big as this? Because it doesn't make sense to play them in their original form in a hall that's what, four times as big as what he had. And it's not just that the audience can't hear it, it's that it doesn't bounce off the walls the same way. 
I mean, it's written very specifically for a certain size hall with the assumption that, you know, it'll resonate in a certain way. And, you know, then then you simply multiply it. And, um, and I think, you know, there's, there's big, um, there's sort of two different areas of concern, I would say, in, you know, sort of the classical music world. One is, you know, in, in your, your heart of hearts, when you think, what would the composer have wanted? Uh, what would the composer have agreed to? You know, and so that's the one big question, the purely musicological question. But a much greater question is always, what will the committee, you know, thing, the, the competition thing, what will the orchestra committee think? And it's really, when I talk to students, uh, I, I make sure that distinction is made. Because what the composer would have wanted is, you know, has been over and over again, it's documented that it conflicts directly with what an orchestra committee wants. For example, Strauss, you know, these, wrote these tone poems like Don Juan and all that, and he has these enormously difficult things for every instrument, it's almost impossible to play. And over, it's been documented over and over again, orchestra members would ask him, well, you know, how can I play this? Just, just fake it. But you try to fake something in an orchestra audition, they won't hire you, right? Right. So, it's, so the big concern is, or, or the allegiance is not to the music itself. It's, and it's, I totally understand it, right? I totally understand it because everybody needs to make a, yeah, needs to make a living. But then, then the question is, okay, if you've already taken the step where by your own admission you're not actually doing what the composer wants, you're doing what, you know, what will get you a job, then, okay, you've already crossed that line. You know, now with the, then, you know, you might as well just pick up and, and then, then the other, the other thing about, um, you know, we were talking just now with this panel. I wish that were on this podcast yeah, sure. too. So, so to interject yeah. here, we were yeah. we, we're at Asta, and we just left a panel um, that Martha Mook, who we featured on this podcast, was hosting the panel, and, and most of the members of the panel have already been on this podcast. But um, the question was, you know, how do we sort of as these quote eclectic styles, the people that are outside the Western classical world, how do we integrate or not integrate into what's I guess considered the mainstream. So that that was the panel. Yeah. Yeah, and the their one one sort of philosophical thing, the thought I had was just the term classical music is really odd because ser you know in, in serious classical study the term classical refers to Mozart and Haydn and a very narrow subset right. of what and then in sort of the vernacular or the loose term classical means whatever you want it to mean mm. right it's it's just a category that all of a sudden goes from you know late 18th century to you know everything from from Gregorian chant to Kabalevsky to you know and it's just the the net gets wider and wider and wider and it swallows up more and more music 
and just say, oh yeah, this is classical. Oh yeah, Kronos Quartet, yeah, that's classical. Oh, this is, you know, on and on. And and the thing is, it's so, it's entirely arbitrary then what is included under the umbrella of classical music. I mean, once you've stepped out of the really strict musicological thing, where you're really talking, you know, which is a legitimate stylistic category, you know, classical, you know, sonata allegro form or whatever you know that stuff is actually a legitimate category whereas classical music used loosely is entirely arbitrary and for me i mean if i if i were to go if i were to take um sort of a a really musicological approach right i would say you know what i was talking about before that you have the um, you know, the keyboard instrument appropriate for a small room and for a larger room for a cathedral and a football stadium or whatever. We have the same question with chamber music. I mean, chamber music, the word chamber refers to a small room, right? So we have string quartets meant for small rooms. And then suddenly string quartets are played in enormous halls and they don't, it doesn't sound like it. So a rock band you know, a good 70s, 60s or 70s rock band, to me, is simply a modern version of chamber music. And it's, in that sense, it's, you know, classical music in every bit as much as a Shostakovich quartet would be, right? That's chamber music with voice, like, you know, or like Brahms songs, you know, whatever, with, the, you know, voice, viola, and piano or something. There's no actual... And uh, Rachel Barton Pine was talking about that too, how a lot of those metal bands, you know, were classical music fans, because there really isn't any actual legitimate musical uh, categorical difference that would that would somehow justify putting, uh, let's say, a Shostakovich quartet and a Corelli sonata under the, you know. Those two, even hundreds of years apart, entirely different right. contexts, entirely different kinds of music. Those two are classical, but Shostakovich and you know Miles Davis are totally different right. styles of music, even though they're written at the same time. That is just purely a social construct, and um, that that that's where the whole debate, you know, especially when people say classical music is is dying. I mean, it's just complete... To me, it's just complete nonsense. I mean, how can something die when it's that amorphous? I mean, it just... You know, it just swallows up more and more things. And so my feeling is just... Um, also, when, you know, when... At in the panel, they talk about how oh, you know, students have never played fiddle music. But anybody who has played, you know, a Bach cello suite has played fiddle music. I mean, you know, if you if you play the the jig at the end of a suite, how is that different from playing yeah, sure. the jig at the end of a set? Right? That's the same exact words. They, you know, and and you can categorize, and there's, you know, there's absolutely no reason to categorize. You know, take a Bach suite and say it's categorically different from an Irish dance set. I mean, it's the same thing. It's it's a 
you know, it's just, okay, someone wrote, wrote it down and, and sort of modified and made it. But, you know, that, um, those distinctions are entirely, you know, just so artificial that I, my feeling is that it's just going to break down, you know, the, the, and speaking of Miles Davis, he already said, you know, don't, don't call this jazz, it's just, it's just music. And there's a point to it, to me, that categories are only useful for actual serious academic study, like they were talking about different fiddle styles. Mm -hmm. But for everything else, for a string player to say, oh, I only play one style or another, it's, you know, it's, it's simply, it's verifiably not true. Even if you play the Mendelssohn violin concerto, even at, you know, in the last minute, I mean, that's just, you know, that's like fiddle, sure. you know, that's like Central European fiddles, fiddle music. From there, it was just, yeah, he heard it on the street or whatever, and he put it in there. So you have played it. If you've played Brahms' piano quartets, you know, these gypsy tunes at the end, well, you've played, you know, you've... And, and, and so all it is really is, you know, to me it's, it's a little bit of a, um, a very artificial resistance to, to change. And the thing is, everything changes, not only in music, um, but in every other field. And for some reason, which I find very odd, especially at a university, my siblings are all engineers. And so my brother actually teaches electrical engineering at the University of Illinois. Okay. And there, the assumption you got hired uh, as an electrical engineering professor, there's no possible way you're going to be teaching exactly the same thing year after year. Sure. Right? There's no way you're going to... You're going like to we've actually learned some new stuff. Yeah, you we're have going to teach to. some new stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's no way. I mean, if you or if you teach, you know, if you're a computer science professor, and you come out there and try to teach Pascal on a cyber computer, like you know, it, it would just be ridiculous. Well, it's always amusing to me how people will argue about how you know they're just the new thing isn't any good, and the old is the only way, and they will argue about this on Facebook. Yeah. Like if, if if the news no good, then you better break out the quill and the parchment yeah. and write to me about it on there, and send it by courier, and maybe I'll reply and maybe I won't. Yeah, and one well one thing about uh, with music that's that's you know I run a hip hop collective too, and one thing there's the sort of disease that runs through every style of music is you constantly have people say oh music was so much better. Oh yeah, country music. Yeah. I've got buddies around on country tours now and. And of course, it's like, well, you know, Kane Brown, that ain't country. The yeah. only country is, is Garth Brooks. Yeah. Well, people said when Garth Brooks first came out, they're like, that ain't country. Yeah. The only country is George Jones. When George Jones came out, that yeah, ain't exactly. country. The only country is Hank Sr. And so, yeah, yeah. there's well, always been the get off my lawn people. Yeah, but there's also, I think, kind of a, just a phenomenon with new music, no matter what style, is that it hasn't been filtered yet. Right? So when you, like people say, well, when I listen to old, you know, oldies stations, every song is great, and I listen to new new stations. They crap music back then. It yeah. Just, it, didn't, it didn't make it till yeah, 2019. Exactly. It's in the dustbin. Yeah, yeah. and so that, the thing is, but that's, it's almost a, a real 
phenomenon of physics. That's true, yeah. And the, the filter of time. Yeah, and so, of course, if you listen to classical radio, everything you hear is going to be great. Yeah, and they all garbage in 1750. Yeah, oh, yeah. They quit playing it yeah. in 1752. Yeah, and so the thing is, this is, and what I find weird is that people who are otherwise very well educated will actually seriously say in, you know, uh, whatever it is, hip-hop in 2019 sucks compared to Tupac and Biggie or something. But it's like, yeah, but I mean, okay, the average, of course, one in every 10,000 songs or whatever will right. even make it. Right. And yeah, of course it's, you know, what, what you're hearing, you know, it's such an obvious thing. So it, just in case anybody, you know, listens to this podcast 30 years from now, please, you know, don't tell people, oh, in 2019, music was so much better than yeah, now. Yeah, like, exactly. I, I'm hoping somebody will, you know, be listening to this in, in you know, uh, 2049 and, and, and just... Because it's also, you know, for me, that, that whole thing is there's something troubling about it. And that's also that it's 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 strangely nihilistic because it says civilization is going downhill. You know? Today's youth, they just don't know what good music is. You know, people say that, and you know, if some grouchy grandpa in, in you know in yeah. a nursing home says it, it's one thing, but when music educators say that, you're basically telling young people, you know, you are not the hope of the future. Yeah. You know, and it's it's really and then you know, so for me, there's also one, you know, reason I run the hip-hop collective or have the electric strings program. It's also, I think, you know, music, maybe more than any other thing we study in college, should reflect society. And maybe, it, you know, it can reflect, this is a big debate in the hip-hop world too, right? Do you Do you just reflect what's actually happening? Or do you try to try to rap try to about it, something yeah. like more utopian right and or some but so that's a debate everywhere but essentially when you know when you have a the majority of musicians at a university saying you know we should never replace the traditional curriculum of you know beethoven brahms and everything that you know, to, I know they don't mean it this way, but it sounds so much like these marchers in Charlottesville saying, you will not replace us. And, right. you know, it's not meant that way. But to me, you know, there's no escaping that when you tell people that, you know, European classical music is the greatest music there is, you're... You know, there's very quickly an extension yeah. that says European culture is better than all other That's cultures. Sure. And, you know, it runs into this. And I, you know, and I am absolutely convinced. I mean, I would say literally none of them, none of my colleagues, or none, I mean, I have actually very progressive colleagues, but none of these people would, you know, ha are actually biased or anything. But it's, it's, it's sort of this privilege. You know, you for sure. It's it's you know what they sort of call white privilege. It's just like, I grew up listening to this very convenient for me, and I'm the same way. In fact, when I was a little kid, my my parents are German. 
had six kids, and all of us had to practice the violin at 6 a.m., and we all started when we were six years old, right? Oh, I yeah. Yeah, it was like six, six, six. And the thing is, I, re I remember um, one thing with my mom, I, gosh, I was like three years old, and she was fanatic about teaching us to swim because we did a lot of camping. So she took us to a swimming pool, took me to a swimming pool, I remember, and on the way from the dressing room to the pool, there was rock radio playing, and she held my ears shut. So I wouldn't hear it, and so it's just so all that doesn't make you want to hear it more. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's how it was. But you know, it's protecting you from it because there's the feeling that you know somehow you know that's the music listened to by people who smoke behind the school or something. It's not that the music. It's right. It's only right. this the social um, context of it, and you know and. And that's where, you know, I I started getting, you know, I, I just had the most classical of class. I mean, much more than most people, like really exclusively classical. And I remember, speaking of camping, we went camping in South, um, in North Carolina, I guess, Asheville. Oh, yeah, yeah beautiful. Asheville, and there's a place called Deep Creek, and you could, you know, inner tube down there. Right? Yeah. And I remember, I, of course, brought my violin there and practiced, and there were these guys sitting around a campfire, and they, you know, banjo and dobro and all this. Mush that fiddle out, boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly what it sounds like, right? And they, hey, come here, kid. And I play, you know, it was like that. And I was, I think it was like eight years old or something. And they, hey, so so where are you playing? And I said, um, Mozart Concerto Number 3 in G Major. I was like, well, I'm not, not quite sure what you mean by that, but just play. And so I... And they just started accompanying me and following every chord and just getting it. And then, and then you know, when I stop because there's a you know, 2D section, there's just improvising on it. And I just, and that's when I, that was the first time, I actually, first time I'd ever heard that kind of music. Yeah. And I just realized wow, they know music theory, even though they don't know what G major means. Like, right. like I, that was a very, that was the first time I, it really occurred to me that, wow, all these different kinds of music aren't actually, right? And that aren't actually different. I remember that, that was just the coolest thing. We're all sharing the same 12 notes. Yeah, and they, and then uh, the next time I remember, then I had, you know, this sort of, you know, classical music education, more classical than, than you could possibly imagine. So this composition teacher, uh, composition professor, Hubert Kessler. So, well, the first thing that happened was when I was like 10 years old, I met some uh, professor from the university, uh, Charles Delaney, and he conducted an orchestra. And he said, oh, you've, you know, you've composed more music than Mozart had at your age. You know, you need to com you know, compose something for the orchestra. And, uh, and conduct it. I was like, what? What? Like, like that? And, um, you know, because he came and visited our school and I turned pages for their, you know, That's program. Cool. And then the next, you know, I, I hadn't even had time to think about it. And the next day my brother said, hey, your name is in the paper. It says next May you're going to conduct a piece you wrote with the orchestra. I was like, what? Yeah. Like that. And I found, you know, he just put it there. And so I was nine years old and I just, you know, composed 
composed a piece. And so I That's great. Um, can then conducted it. You know, I had like a, an extra platform for really? and learned to conduct, learned all this stuff. And so I had this great jump start there. And I remember he told me, you know, I, I said, well, um, yeah, I don't know, you know, about trombones or saying I didn't know about various instruments. He says, you learn by doing. Which was a really liberal uh, kind of thing. It's not that you learn and learn and learn and then then you're free to apply it. It's you decide what you want to do and on the way you learn. And so, of course, one thing I did, of course, I wrote, I had studied all these old scores and Brahms and uh, and that was always my Christmas for Dover scores. Oh, wow. And I'd study those and I wrote for horn in D. Because, well, that's what I saw in old oh, scores. Funny. I was like, oh, that doesn't exist anymore, right? And, and so, but then a few years later, I started composition lessons with uh, uh, a retired comp- composer, uh, composition professor, Hubert Kessler. And he, he said, no, we need to take you all the way back to, you know, these Mothadorian, Phrygian, yeah. and I was like, and I sat there just thinking, okay, this is the most ancient wisdom nobody has ever heard you know it's like yeah. wow this is like and then i remember in middle school there was a kid who was studying like you know rock guitar and i said oh so what do you practice said, well you know i have to practice like phrygian on so, yeah. it's like oh my god like i suddenly it's not the old style music and new style music it all comes and it it all comes from the same origin. It's just branched off, right? It's a little bit like um, I don't know. I know this is kind of far fetched, but when you read like Tolkien, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, he actually studied Icelandic. He learned the Icelandic language because that's the closest modern language okay, to yeah. ancient Germanic, and so that's all it is, you know. Even like Aerosmith and and, yeah. and and Handel come from the same, you know, on, you know, one end, and of course, then there's African influence, and there are all kinds of different influences everywhere. But even there, I was just recently reading a, a, a treatise that actually made sense to me. I was like, "What's the origin of the Saraband?" Right, and so it always says, "Well, it was a Spanish dance." Of, you know, Cuban origin or something. That's that's how it's. But then, okay, how did it get to Cuba? And the interesting thing is, uh, in uh, in the Cong in the Congolese religion, there was a god, the god of iron. His name Zarabanda, mm. and the Spanish brought slaves from Congo to Cuba, and then they exported this Zarabanda to Spain, and then. You know, then it made its way to Germany. And wow. so there, you know, if you are to believe this, which is pretty plausible sure. theory, there Bach is writing an African dance. You know, and so this idea that one thing is European music and the other is fiddle music and the other is rock, to me is all, you know, on any kind of, any kind of serious academic level, it's all nonsense. Right. right, and so then it comes down to on, only to marketing, and uh, you know I think I think on that level you know electric strings are you know 
can be tremendously, you know, successful and students can actually really um, make careers out of, sure. of that. And there's also for me the, the whole I, you know, the whole question of string education, uh, where a lot of people say, well, you know, start the kids on acoustic instruments with stripes, you know, um, sort of pasted on, you know, like right. whatever. And these and those little stripes keep Training moving. Wheels, yeah, yeah and, and then the problem with that is, of course, the students um, turn, neither turn their heads really hard to the left in order to see those stripes, and they get neck aches and right. develop uh, bad habits. And they learn to scrunch the instrument between their neck and their shoulder, and they grab it, and on and on. You know, it's all just a result of basically just in order to see where to put their fingers. And then the complaint is either they don't learn music theory or they don't learn ear training or they don't, you know, right. no matter how you teach it, there's always going to be something. But now, if you had a bunch of miniature vipers, right, first of all, they would attach hands-free. Sure. And they have frets. So students can simply heat, they can feel where to put their fingers. So they don't need to, they don't need to turn their head to look at the fingerboard. They don't need to scrunch their neck down to play. They can simply play. They can simply play. And the, you know, you don't have to reach around the bout. Uh, you could label the notes mm -hmm. like they do on kitty keyboards. Yeah. So you get a little kitty keyboard with all the the, the notes labeled. You get a kitty viper with all the notes labeled. You can see the equivalent of the piano and the instrument. Then you get uh, on the scores with all the, you know, music is notated, and you have a, the notes labeled. And they actually could learn music theory and ear training all together and good positioning. And to me, if students want to play acoustic instruments... Then they can start them later. I mean, I would yeah, flip yeah. it around. I would flip it around. It's to me, in absolutely every respect, an electric instrument would be a better one to start on. I mean, mm -hmm. look at the guitar world, right? Yeah. Um, my son plays guitar. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have an acoustic guitar. Yeah. He's got an electric guitar. He's like, Dad, I don't want to play acoustic guitar. I want to play Metallica. Yeah. So, so he's, you know, and how many guitar players out there, their first and only guitar. Is an electric guitar, and nobody ever goes. Well, what if you want to play acoustic? Yeah. Well, you well, can. What if I don't? Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, the uh, you know a, a small violin. Another thing, just purely in the acoustic world, actually, you know, when I t was talking about Yo-Yo Ma's alto violin, this same woman, Carlene Hutchins, actually developed an octave violin, mm -hmm. and. It's just a tiny violin that's tuned an octave higher than a normal one. And so it actually sounds good, right? Whereas a tiny quarter-sized violin tuned like a regular violin it just sounds terrible. Even, right. even the most amazing, you know, prodigy little kid playing it, just a squawky, squawky. Like but a three-quarter-sized electric with a Barbera great. pickup on yeah. it sounds great. In fact, yeah. I just played Carnegie Hall with, with uh, Emmanuel Bishop, who is... Um, who plays a three-quarter size. He's yeah. got Down syndrome, so he's got short arms. Yeah. So he plays a three-quarter size violin, but it's got a Barbera on it. You plug it in, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like a Barbera. Yeah. That's it. And yeah. uh, so you could, we, could, we could make these little small yeah. violins that actually do sound good. 
Yeah, that's something I'm, I, I'm actually, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, 3D printing mm -hmm. uh, labs, because, you know, again, because it's a big engineering school, sure. people building, designing new types of cars and all kinds of things, so we can, you know, yeah. we're experimenting with that, and uh, Paganini actually uh, started on the mandolin. Mm. And you know the basically you know when you when you start the violin they say okay put the bow away you're just gonna pluck right. and you're gonna have these stripes so how's that different from a mandolin right. it's a, it's tuned that way it has right so it makes much more sense and uh, that's that's something that I you know I mean I don't think I'll start my own yeah. you know school but I do think you know I. I, I would like to introduce the idea to people who, you know, who actually sure. run programs. And then there's also the big question, you know, back to this question of what constitutes classical music. And, you know, I was always baffled, even when I was a little kid, like, you know, why is this called classical and this isn't? And, you know, one of the things that people talk about is, well, audience behavior. Right. Is, right? And even that is, it's, it's really strange because we use the term classical, which applies to the late eight, official, no, really technically to late 18th century music. But then we impose sort of norms of dress and behavior that come from the late 19th century. And so, you know, we play Haydn, people play Haydn quartets in huge halls, nobody claps between the movements, everybody's quiet which they didn't actually do for Haydn quartets. Eh? And, and so all of this, you know, it's verifiable. I mean, you can see documentation, you know, you, the, all, the, all those lines have been crossed yeah, already. Well, we drove here in cars yeah, to exactly. listen to 18th century music. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, the really interesting thing also is the authentic performance practice thing, which... You know, so, I mean, I listen to you know, Baroque instruments all the time, but it's it's very selectively applied. For example, Beethoven's Violin Concerto, when it was originally premiered, the violinist played the first movement, then he juggled and played the violin behind his back and, and you know, goofed off. Then he played the second movement. And I, I pointed this out to people. I said, well, look, you know, if a student plays this and plays Beethoven violin concerto in a jury and doesn't juggle between the first two movements and we should fail him because it's not authentic. Yeah, what appropriate, right? yeah. But the thing is, and they just, oh, well, this is silly and now we take music much more seriously than back then and, and you know. Weird Al would like a word. Yeah, yeah but the <laughs> thing is, it's, I mean, the, the fact is juggling and playing the instrument behind your head between the first two movements had a very serious purpose, and that was to clear your mind, to say, okay, look, this music is too serious and too heavy to all take in at once. So you listen to the first movement, you clear your mind. It's like a, a five-course cleanser. Yeah, yeah. five-course meal with a palate cleanser. Um, and then you hear, the, and they knew it. And, you know, I didn't read anywhere that Beethoven complained about it. That was assumed. And so now, when you have people taking their kids to concerts, oh, Mom, this is so boring, can we go home? Like all this, it's like, well, the kid is right. You yeah. know, it is 
It's way too much to take in. It wasn't presented that way when it was written. It was never intended to be presented that way. And it's just this this exercise in... You know, so for me, what what's happening very rapidly, I think, isn't that classical music is dying out. It's that the the false narratives are being exposed. Mm. A lot of the things that simply, you know, they're not true. They're, they're sort of things that, they're sort of legends that have been built up. And, you know, and, and, and really history that, that has been rewritten and things that have been hidden away um, that are finally, you know, I think... Well, why did people go hear music in the 1700s? The same reason they want to go hear music today. It was entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, and the the thing is, what's interesting, too, is that some things have survived. For example, in operas, people clap. Why? You know, like, they interrupt the music and, and clap, right? A cheer for Samaria yeah. while the orchestra is playing, and for no reason whatsoever, they no longer do that in concertos, which they did back then too. And so, um, and and there's also a lot of, you know, a lot of these norms. For example, that you let's say you play, a, you know, we all play these Bach sonatas sure. or Tita's or, or you know whatever. You sit there completely silently, especially the cello suites. A cellist comes out and begins the prelude. But the prelude in a suite like that is the equivalent of the prelude to a church service. And the organist is just playing and playing and playing. People are walking. Yeah, people are, are like two blocks away, yeah. walking on the cobblestones, and they hear it, and then they sit down, and the organist kind of looks and is, okay, is everybody seated? Okay, okay, because I'll wind it down. And so that's how that's supposed to be. You're supposed... I mean, really, if you wanted to be authentic about it, you would be playing this prelude. People would be chit As they open the doors. Yeah, yeah, and then, you know, you repeat it, and you mess around with it. Okay, I'm done. And and then, you know, you play the... Hey, welcome. Thanks for coming. Yeah, and then you play the Alamand you know, after this, and you you know, and, and you play the, the Saraban doing, the, you know, um, some ceremony or whatever. That's what it's... You know, it, so, so in your mind, it, all this to say that like it's a completely natural thing that it, that we would evolve. Yes. In order to say that the electric instrument is a completely legit thing, and oh my goodness, why haven't yeah. we embraced yeah. this? It, it's it's the electric violin didn't come out of nowhere. It's it was a, if you look back, it was a predictable part of the trajectory yeah. of where musical evolution. Yeah is and always has been headed. Yeah, and it's not... And the thing is, what I think... The the only real issue here is... I mean, the electric instrument isn't the anomaly. The anomaly is a musical establishment that thinks the entire world changes around it. Everything. Cars change, societies change, technology, everything changes, except what they do. That's this, this imaginary this sort of conceit that, well, this is, and, you know, this is unchanging, and this is eternal, but... It's the make music great again mentality. Yeah, and the thing is, it's also completely arbitrary, like, it's arbitrary, arbitrarily drawn at which which point it doesn't change, right? It's like, okay, it changed until then, but now it won't. And the... uh, 
the thing is, the electric instruments, like you said, they're just a, a, an outgrowth of it, of course. And if you, if we talk about authenticity, too, it's, it's kind of funny when I think about electric instruments and I think of composers coming, you know, I always do this weird mental game. Okay, they come back, um, you know, okay, let's say Bach comes back and hears people playing his, he hears, he's, he hears recordings that people have made these days. Here's someone playing a recording on a Baroque instrument. From his point of view, there is the sound of a violin coming out of a speaker. Yeah. He's like, oh my God, look at that. So it's like, this is, I, you know, I don't see a violinist yeah. here. There's a sound. Yeah, we didn't do that back then. This is a recording. Yeah. It's like, this is a sound. And so for from his point of view, coming back to life now and kind of having everything, a crash course in what's happened, he, okay, so he hears a recording of someone having played an elect, uh, a Baroque violin, or he hears someone play his music on a viper standing right there, and he sees the person playing. It's also coming out of a speaker. But would he make any categorical difference? Would he say, well, but this was... Right. You know, this is played... One of these is legit, one of these is Yeah, I mean, this is played on an, on a Baroque instrument like I had, and somebody standing near a microphone, and it goes through this, and on, 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 and comes out of a speaker, and this is played on an instrument that's directly plugged in. It was like, okay, so what? what's the big deal? Yeah. Like, I, I, he would probably say, well, it sure seems like this electric thing is a lot simpler, so... Yeah. um, what? I mean... There, that's that's kind of the the mentality I have, there. and also just when you know students want to make a living as musicians, but they want to do it prestigiously or something. Though also that whole notion of one thing being more prestigious than another, I just shoot down. I mean, now I have three students who have been playing on cruise ships. Yeah, and they just. Man, and and mm -hmm. I bet they don't want to compare. I bet the the prestigious crowd didn't want to compare ten ninety nines with the kids exactly. that have been on cruise ships. Yeah. yeah, and the thing is, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing more or less prestigious about one thing or another. Even even the notion of, you know, that commercial music is somehow less good than non-commercial music. If you look at, you know. Um, Michael Jackson, you know, was, yeah, was, sure. whatever, was, I guess four siblings. And his dad had the most commercial intentions you can possibly imagine. He was working in a steel mill in Gary, Indiana. I was like, I'm going to be rich and exploit these kids. But with the most, you know, blatantly commercial intentions, he brought forth, caused some of the greatest music there is to come forth. So... The, the fact that the fact that people are willing to spend money on the music is already meaningful. Okay, so it's yeah. commercial, right? You, that means something. And, and well, that, I think that's a struggle too. And, it, and it's and I live a little bit in like the pop punk world. And I was talking to somebody today, and it was like, well, I don't want to be sellout. I was like, dude, here's what a sellout is. A sellout is a person who says, I wanted to do things on my terms but I'm going to do them on your terms for money. Yeah. If you do them on your terms for money, that ain't selling out. No. 
that's just you being you, and hey, well, you happen to be successful. But say, I want to do it this way, A. Mm -hmm. You want me to do it way B for money. Okay, I'll do it your way. That's a sellout. But if you're doing it your way, if you're doing it way A and happen to make money, that doesn't make you a sellout. That's not a sellout. Yeah, and there's also one thing with this panel we just heard. was very interesting that teachers don't want to be caught teaching something they don't know. Right? Yeah. But the thing is, in every other field, again, like you know, computer science or engineering or physics or anything, it's a given that you're not... I mean, the things you're going to teach five years from now don't exist. You don't even know what they're going to right. be. Yeah, my wife's a physician. You know, they call it practicing medicine. Yes. She was a professor at a med school. So, yeah. so she's learning at the same time she's teaching yeah, her students. Exactly. You know, so why would that be any different in music? Yeah, and I have this... My, my notion that now, music should reflect society is kind of, you know, it, to me, it, it automatically reflects society unless you resist. Mm-hmm. Right? For example, when I was, my first teaching job was at West Virginia University. And uh, so I was 28 years old. And so I got this commission to write a trumpet concerto from, say, Paul Markello is a principal trumpet of the Montreal Symphony. Oh, I've never written a trumpet concerto. Sure, I'll yeah. do that. And then at the same time, uh, you know, I was, I was kind of thinking about this trumpet concerto, and I heard all this clanging and banging down in the basement. And I thought, well, you know, the heating system is busted here or something in Morgantown, West Virginia. And I went down to the basement. It turns out there was a steel pan factory there. Hmm. And they had, you know, random, okay, there was, you know, music from Trinidad here. Yeah. This guy, okay, well, you're tuning steel pans. And I'd heard steel pans before but I've never really seen them being made and so I thought okay I'm going to include steel pans in my trumpet concerto why not yeah and then some you know at some point some composition professor came to me and said you you should you know, you should really write something using this B A C H uh, you know motive like da 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 you know Bach's mm-hmm. name in German notation I thought okay I'll write a trumpet concerto with steel pans using that you know yeah. I just Okay, I'll do that. And so there's Calypso tune, um, with this, you know, based on B A C H. And then at the same time, I was kind of, yeah. So the composition professor I was telling you about Hubert Kessler, he had died like ten years before that, and I always felt bad because he wanted me to write twelve tone music in Viennese school, and I just like didn't want to uh, like that. And then he was always really disappointed. And I wrote it. I actually won. Uh, comp- national composition contest with 12-tone music, and then I abandoned it, and he was really disappointed. So I thought, okay, I'm going to make a 12-tone row out of this. Ding, 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 ding. You know, just sure. transpose it twice. And so all these facts, and it's just random. It's all by accident. And um, and then, you know, some guy was, was played like funk bass or something, and I thought, okay, I'll write, you know, put a big solo in there for you. And then after it was performed, um, like you know, it was performed a few times, and a student came in and was like, "Dude, that bass line sounds like Primus," and I started listening. I was like, "Oh yeah, it does." Yeah. Right. And so, just purely by accident, you know, just just by letting all these random factors come together, you and that you know you develop something new, and that's also how I approach the this hip hop collective. You just just throw things in, you know, learn by doing. You just 
throws things together. People come in, one person starts rapping, the other comes in with a Chinese bamboo flute, the next person is playing, playing a you know, you know, Mozart concerto, and they just, you know, they just start listening to each other and they throw something together. And that, that's the other big, huge problem like with the categorization of music that we're talking about uh, in the panel is that it eliminates the accidents that need to happen. Mm -hmm. Because in, in the sciences and in music everywhere, like, you know, if you just look at the invention of the phonograph uh, or the x-ray, I mean, those were all by accident. And I'm glad. Sure. I'm glad these people... Penicillin. Yeah, yeah and I'm glad these people were so sloppy in their, yeah. in their lab safety things that, <laughs> you know, uh, suddenly, oh my gosh, I see my bones on the you know, screen here. But... Those accidents need to happen. So in, a, in the school of music, we have plenty of courses where the, you're going to learn jazz, improvisation, and this and that style, and this, which is great. But then we also have, then we have my hip-hop collection, we, and we also have the improvisers exchange. People go and improvise in any style. It's just the principle of improvising. Just, right. just who cares what styles? Just make something up. Right? Because if you say you need to improvise in this style and you start improvising and say, oh, no, no, that's, that's, that's the wrong style, then you're not, well, you're yeah. not really improvising anymore, right? Cause, because then suddenly there are Because these aren't my like, ideas anymore. These are your ideas. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that just the random accidental stuff, has, you, you have to be able to throw things together. And well, it wasn't like a, a committee of standards that developed jazz, right? No. There's a bunch of dudes hanging yeah, out exactly. after their after their jobs. And you know, it wasn't a committee of standards or or a or a or a school that produced rock and roll. Yeah. It wasn't you know, the the innovations that happen in music are usually made by people that are sort of outside the establishment yeah. anyway. And yeah. they sort of hacked off the establishment. Remember Paganini, they they weren't fans of Paganini. The no. the the powers that be weren't fans of no. him. They thought he was possessed by the devil. Yeah. So, you know, I think when there's always this thing, like, how do we prepare students to be innovators well, by we, using the system that we expect yeah, them to rebel against? Well, we have, so there's a basic problem with, I mean, I teach at a university, I, you know, that's how I earn my living. But there's a fundamental problem with universities, and I don't even know how to address it. But, you know, we have courses, Specific course numbers, music 183, violin, 184, viola, 185. And so right there, you've defined musical instruments into very specific categories. So my acoustic instrument has five strings. I you know, can teach violin or viola on it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's no course number. And, you know, National Association of Schools of Music doesn't have guidelines for teaching five-string violin or the viola da spalla, or if you want to teach viola da gamba, it's yet another big thing. And so this random invention, the, the, the stuff that's been going on for hundreds of years, where composers and performers and instrument builders constantly go in circles and discuss with each other what to do, suddenly comes to a standstill so that we can say, oh, you passed this curriculum right. and this. And that, 
see, I'm not really sure what the answer is. Maybe it should be one course that's simply called string instruments. Because there's there's a real problem. It's just an artificial um Right, it's an artificial standardization. But we can't say, you know, because I'm I'm sort of on the I'm not a music school guy, so I'm sort of mm-hmm. on the outside looking yeah. in. But you know, we can't say that we abandon all. And this was, this was talked about in our like yeah. styles dinner the other night. We can't abandon all. Like you don't have to learn any technique, because like the I, I use the the example of, of painters. Like if you can't paint a straight line, mm-hmm. and your idea includes straight lines, then you can't communicate your idea. Yeah. Right, so we have to have some technique because without technique, I don't have any way to explore my ideas. We have to learn proper grammar before we can write mind-blowing novels. Yeah. Right, Steinbeck had to learn how to make you know his nouns and subject or nouns and verbs agree. Yeah, but that was such a small part to say. Okay, yeah, you have to you know you have to have predicate agreement or yeah. whatever. You have to have good grammar. Okay, now go blow the world's yeah, mind. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, I have to know how to play in tune, and I and I have to know how to 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 handle this bow thing in my right mm-hmm. hand properly. But past that, dude, go create some art. Yeah, and there's also, you know, there's everybody, no matter what style of music they teach, says, well, first you need to learn the fundamentals, right? But then, what are the fundamentals? For example, if I if I'm teaching someone to play a, a fugue. To me, the very first fundamental is understand how the fugue is structured. I mean, it's a fugue. You need to look, okay, here's the subject, here's the answer, you know, develops and so forth. And for other people, the first thing is, okay, for turn on the metronome here, then I put the fingerings in, you need to play these notes, right? And there, and so even, even, fundamentals of music even in the 19th century if you, you know it's once in a while you run across these old books and they taught much more the way fiddlers are taught now than you know it's much freer and you know they uh, obviously the first thing you learn is music theory you learn some harmony you learn this and then you apply it to the instrument Rather than just being told third finger on the eighth string, right. and, and but so what constitutes fundamentals really varies from you know one school of thought to another, and everybody claims that what they are teaching are the essential fundamentals, and um, yeah. So to me, if somebody if somebody le- really learns harmony and theory and really understands what they're doing and learns ear training, they can play the instrument any which way. I mean, there are people, a lot of people in India who sit in lotus position. Oh, yeah, for sure. Barefoot, put the scroll into their heel and play absolutely amazingly. And they can play for four hours straight where we can't. They they don't need Alexander technique because their backs and necks are all screwed up. Yeah. Yeah, and so it can, you know... The instrument can be played in so many different ways. And so you could also say, well, a fundament- the fundamentalist is yoga. I don't know. Maybe that's the first fundamental thing to learn. And the, I think the big, you know, the big problem, our hands are kind of tied. By, and also for orchestras. You know, the reality is, if you, I mean, I 
think if you auditioned for the New York Philharmonic and you, on viola audition, you played a five-string alto violin held like a cello, let's say, they would probably not take you in the viola section. Right. Right. Even though in their heart of hearts they know that every single composer who wrote any of the music they play would have approved of it. Every single one was like, well, who cares? I don't care whether other every they still won't do it. Right? So the allegiance is not to the music. Right? The allegiance is to some imaginary standard of you know, Yeah, and what's funny is we're trying to prep these kids for jobs that aren't out there. Yeah. It's like it's like yeah. I mean, what percentage of people who pick up a violin in sixth grade are gonna play in a in a national level orchestra? Like none. Yeah, and like the, what are the percentage kids who start playing basketball who are going to play in the NBA? Like no. statistically, <laughs> none. Yeah, you know exactly. most of them are going to play in a rec league somewhere and enjoy it. Yeah, or they're going to you know they might play in high school, but then afterwards some pickup stuff, or they're going to enjoy shooting hoops in the backyard with their kids. We don't look at music like that. We think yeah. like every sixth grade kid who picks up this thing, we've got to prep this kid to be in the New York Phil. Yeah, I mean, I think the the big thing with music education that needs to change is not say, not tell kids, okay, what are you going to do in 20 years? Because what you think you're going to do might not even exist. Right. For example, now, you know, if you want to get known uh, all over the world, I mean, 20 years ago, if you wanted to be known internationally, you have to travel all over the world. And now, you can make YouTube, YouTube videos. YouTube channel, right? yeah. And, but still, it's not quite the same as, as a live performance. But... I would imagine 30 years from now, we're going to have three-dimensional, you know, hollow, Star Trek hollow suite yeah. style things where you play and people can walk up to you and, and they, they can, you know, put their, you know, sort of virtually put their hands on the bottom of the instrument, feel the vibrations or, or whatever, stand next to the speaker they see there and feel it vibrating. And it's going to be more and more like a live performance. And so... So how do we prep kids for that, right? I think... Well, I think the way to prep them for it is the same way kids who... Uh, for example, my nephew works for SpaceX. Um, and, you know, the, the way he's brought... He was brought up, you know, wanting to be a you know, computer geek and all that and, and an engineer. It's just, yeah, you don't know exactly what's going to be out there. But... You, you just gain knowledge and gain this this basic ability to, you know, for music, you, you, you learn to make music, you constantly prepare yourself for, for whatever might be out there. And, you know, also when I run the hip-hop collective, you know, I have students coming in saying, well, I can't read music, and the next person, I can't improvise, and the next person, I can only read jazz charts, and the next person, I can only read guitar tablature, and on and Everybody has a different way of learning music. But with all this, you know, this computer software, you can easily translate from one to another. Right. When someone writes, makes a beat, they can send me a MIDI file of it, you know. Right. I can put it in, in a music notation software. I in, in there put it into tablature or chord charts or whatever you want. And I can and basically the the way I get people to improvise, in, you know, classical musicians, I give the, them the most boring part possible. I just say, well, you, you 
play what's written. Like, da, da, da. And after a while, sheer boredom. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, exactly. I can play it. So, but it's, you know, also just telling people, improvise. It's just, it's just awfully frightening. And, you know, it doesn't really result in anything. But, but, you know, just sheer impatience is going to cause them. They're just going to start yeah. improvising. Um, and so, but even there, 30 years ago, it, you know, a group like this would have been much more difficult to put together because it would have been much harder to translate all this That's stuff true. from one, one thing to another. So... I think the mentality of, of stagnation is just, that's what's wrong. It's, that's the big problem. I don't think it's really so much a different style and this and that. It's just, look, things evolve in music, in technology, in everything else in society. Everything evolves. And, yeah. It, it, so string playing should, too. Yeah. It, it, and you don't even need to sort of consciously make it evolve you just go with the flow and all and also what always has to be kept in mind is that no music that has existed is ever going to die it's all been recorded right and so it's not going to go away it's it's there right no matter what it's 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 there you have nothing there's nothing to worry about so yeah. um yeah so that's that's kind of with the uh, you know, my electric string students learn to make beats. They learn to, you know, make their backing tracks. They learn to, um, you know, just get things ready for whatever comes up. And, um, you know, they're going, they're going to keep um, evolving with new, new technology and new knowledge and everything. So, um, yeah, so it's in the, Kind of an exciting time to be alive. You know? Indeed, like, indeed. I think it's it's great, dude. This has uh, been a fascinating conversation. All right, I, I had no idea it was going to go this direction, and uh, I'm thinking about this is going to be such a really cool interview to listen to. It's going to be so different from any other interview we've done. Oh, and uh, so yeah, thanks for uh, for sitting here and chatting hey, with me. Thanks a lot. And uh, I really hope you guys enjoy this. So, where can we find? Where can people find you and find out more about? Because we didn't even get into your art and uh -huh. your music. So where do people find you and what you're doing? And if they're interested in learning from a guy who is is embracing the future, and, and yeah, how, how do they find you? What's your All right. social media contact? Well, I am on, uh, I have my own website. That's probably the easiest way to find me. Uh, so it's RudolphHaken.com. You just need to know how to spell my name. Yeah. So here goes, R-U-D-O-L-F-H-A-K-E-N.com. And I teach at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, so you can... Not uh, hard to find. Yeah, that's <laughs> not hard to find, illinois.edu. Um, and on my website, I, I also have an enormous amount of sheet music that I've published. I just give it away for free. Because um, I'm not a good business. Well, user, there's so. a guy who just <laughs> recognized what the present reality is and just yeah. said, you know what, I'm not fighting. Yeah, you. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, ASCAP pays me for, for every performance, so that's how I earn yeah. money. So, um, yeah, so, and you can always uh, write to me on my website, and uh, if there's anything more you want to see there, you can just let me know, and I'll, I'll put it up. Yeah. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, right. and uh, another rock star violinist. Yeah. All right. All hey, right. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thanks. Okay, that's a wrap. 
Hope you guys enjoyed our chat with Rudolf Hocken about the history and trajectory of string music. If you have thoughts on this issue, please don't hesitate to comment. We'd love to hear your ideas. We've got a number of fantastic interviews coming your way this year, so stay tuned for more Rockstar Violinists. Violinists.